Well, as we go to God's Word this morning, we are now at the very end of the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters of it. We're going to look this morning at chapters 65 and 66. Uh, chapters 65 and 66 do something of giving us kind of a, a summary of redemptive history, you could call it. It's telling us about what God is going to do with his people that were at the time, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. What is God going to do with them? And then what does God have coming after the Jewish people, so to speak? And so the first scripture that we're going to read is Isaiah 65, verses 8 to 12. And this verse shows us in a way that, that God is going to move on from the Jewish people, from the Israelite people. It pronounces judgment upon them. And then uh, Sam will come up and read for us from Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, that tells us that God is building something new, a new heavens and a new earth. And so we're going to read about that. And then I want us to go to the New Testament to see how the New Testament kind of fits these clues from Isaiah together. So uh, Sean will come up and read for us from Romans 10, where we'll see uh, the Apostle Paul answer the question, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected the Jewish people? And Paul's answer is that he hasn't, and he explains to us what God is doing with his Jewish people right now. And then finally, John will come up and read for us from Ephesians chapter 2, where we find that the Apostle Paul is again telling us that now we, the people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, are one body, one church, with the Jewish people in the church of Jesus Christ. And so, again, we're looking at kind of a, a narrative of Scripture. We're looking at what God has done in history as we look at these texts this morning. And then again, as I come up and preach in particular from Isaiah 65 and 66, I hope that it just fills our hearts with faith to see just the amazing things that God is doing on the earth right now and what that means he can do for you and what it means that he can do in the community around us. And so, uh, Ryan, if you want to come on up and begin our reading in Isaiah 65. This is Isaiah chapter 65, verses 8 through 12. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will, bring off, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah's possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. This is Romans 10, 20 through 11, verse 5. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I asked them, Did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people who, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? 
I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. This is Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Ephesians two seventeen through 19 And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For, the, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Well, in Isaiah this morning, as we come to the close of Isaiah, and as Isaiah is, in a sense, encapsulating his whole message, what he says that God is going to do with both the nation of Israel and the days to come, one thing we find is that God is a God who loves drama. He loves to tell a story. He doesn't just love to do the same thing day after day. He loves to do new things. He loves to say that in the former days, I did this, but now in the days to come, I'm going to do that. And I don't think God necessarily loves drama for its own sake, as if he himself is entertained or gets a lot out of the drama. But I think God loves drama because of what it does to us, how it should and how it does affect our hearts. God created us to be creatures that enjoy drama, that enjoy a good story. I'm going to take a wild guess that if you are here this morning and you are a human being, then you love stories. Maybe it's movies, maybe it's TV, maybe it's books, maybe it's even sports or politics, but there's something there that you like. And I think you like those things in large part because in each of those things, there is some sense of drama. There is some sense of story. If it's sports, you love the drama of a team that hasn't made it to the playoffs in 20 years, and are they finally going to make it to the championship game? Or is that rookie player who no one believed in, is he going to be able to make that amazing catch? You know, the, the drama of sports is what makes it exciting, not just, you know, the numbers on the scoreboard at the end of the game. If it's books, then you probably love the drama of an orphan who is living under the stairs, who then became a great wizard. It's just an amazing story of transformation. 
Or if it's movies, maybe you love the drama of a Roman general who became a slave, who became a gladiator, who challenged an emperor. Just this amazing story of transformation, this amazing drama. Or if it's TV, maybe you love the drama of a high school chemistry teacher who becomes a drug kingpin. All of these stories are stories about people who begin in one place so you can never imagine ending in another place. They're the story of transformation, the story of change. Drama essentially comes from something not meeting our expectations, something being surprising or amazing. We have the phrase Cinderella story to describe drama because the Cinderella story is the story of a servant girl who is hated by her own family who then becomes a princess, right? It's this amazing drama. It's an amazing story of change. And of course, I could get all philosophical and try to explain why we like this and why it appeals to us so deeply, but I don't think I need to explain it for us to just understand this fact that, yeah, we love drama. We love good stories. Just as a funny story, I was looking at BBC World News this past week, and of course, there's all these amazing stories about what's going on in the world, you know, all these dramatic stories about big world events. And for some reason, on the BBC World News homepage, they had this one story about pig in Germany befriends a family of cows. And I just had to laugh, because I was like, of all the stories you could tell in the world, of all the drama going on in the world, you pick this one thing to put on your homepage that has no drama whatsoever about a pig being friends with cows. Those things are not interesting, because there is no transformation, there's no change, there's no drama there. We all love stories that are dramatic. Those boring stories, we have a name for them too. We say they're dog bites man stories. They're dog bites man because everybody expects a dog to bite a man. So what's interesting about that, right? There's no drama there. And so when we think about drama, when we think about the stories that we love, we are thinking of things that are surprising, that are amazing, where change happens that could never have been expected beforehand, that we could never have seen coming. Those are the stories of drama that we love. Now, God has wired us in this way. God has wired us to love drama. And because he wired us in this way, God wants to use drama so that we will give him glory. God's chief end in all that he does is to get praise and glory for himself. And because he knows how we are attracted to drama, he himself wants to write the greatest drama that has ever been written so that we will see the drama that he has written and our jaws will drop and we will say, Lord, you are amazing. Who else could have written this story that you wrote? This is why he has given us scripture, right? Scripture is not just a book of rules, you know, that tell us like, okay, do this, don't do that. This is how you please God. This is how you make him angry. Scripture is not mainly a book of rules. Scripture is mainly a story. And it is a story because God wants us to be amazed with him and the story that he is writing. God knows that if we can see the drama of how he works in the world, the drama that he is writing in all of history, then he knows that our hearts will be drawn to him in faith and in love. And I know that if you've been a Christian for any time at all, then you necessarily have seen something of the drama that God likes to create. Just one part of the drama that God is writing in history is the death of Jesus Christ for sinners. And if you're a Christian, then it means that you have been amazed at the contrast that exists between a sinner like you and the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. 
And you've been amazed that a person as glorious and as perfect as Jesus Christ would die for a sinner like you. And that he would promise to love you forever and ever, even though you didn't do anything to deserve his love. And so you, a beggar, a dead sinner, become a child of the king of heaven. That's one part of God's story. And if you have been amazed by that, if you've come to love that story, then you're a believer. If I can tell that story and you're just kind of scratching your head and saying, well, what sounds kind of boring to me. Well, then that shows that you have not yet truly come to receive Jesus Christ as the treasure that he is. You haven't seen the drama in the gospel that God himself is writing. And these closing two chapters of Isaiah here are almost the definition of drama. In fact, there's a couple passages here where Isaiah is trying to draw our attention in particular to the drama that God is writing. And so if you want to look at Isaiah 65, verses 4 and 6. Here Isaiah is going to talk about just the amazing transformation that God is going to work. He's talking about his people, Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat as in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay I will indeed repay into their laps. So that's one level of what God is dealing with. These people who are entirely corrupted, who are eating pig's flesh, and yet saying that they are holy, that this is the low point that God starts with. But then look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And so God is saying that, yes, I am starting with this people that are a wicked people, a terrible people, but I am ending with a new heavens and a new earth. Again, it's this transformation. It's this drama that none of us in our own wisdom could ever have written ourselves. It's an amazing story that God himself has written. And so we have this question, how is God going to put these two things together? How is he going to put together this people who are so corrupted and thinking that they are holy? And how is he going to put that together with some new creation with he, uh, new creation that he is building? How is he going to take the city of Jerusalem from this place where people are sitting in tombs and eating pig flesh and awaiting the judgment of God to a place That's like a new creation where there's eternal rejoicing without a hint of distress. Now, whatever story this is, however God is going to do this, I want to know this story. I want to hear this story. I mean, this whole setup sounds better than any Lord of the Rings story. It's better than any grandiose epic ever written. It is the story of humanity itself. And so I trust that as we see the wonder of the story, again, we will want to give all the more glory to God for what he has done. Isaiah is telling us that he, that God wants to write a dramatic story. If you look at Isaiah 65, verse 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. He's saying that I am going to destroy this cluster of grapes. But before I destroy this cluster, I'm going to bring some new wine out of this cluster. So there's going to be destruction on the one hand. There's going to be new, amazing wine on the other hand. Or you could turn to Isaiah 66, verse 7. 
It says, before she was in labor, she, meaning the Zion, the new Jerusalem, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. And so again, God is saying, I'm going to bring pain upon Jerusalem. I'm going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem. But before I bring that judgment, I'm going to give birth to a son. I'm going to give birth to a new nation coming out from Jerusalem. And so God's saying that there's this huge contrast, this huge transformation going on. And if we can see it, then we can rejoice and we can glory in this perfect and glorious God. Now, in these verses, God tells us that he is going to do those things, but he doesn't necessarily tell us exactly how he is going to do these things. And so I just want to say here at the outset that we know now in light of Jesus Christ that the only way that God performs these things is through Jesus Christ. And so I won't be able to hone in this morning on exactly how God is bringing about these purposes, but I, want to bring, but I want to focus on the transformations that God is going to bring about. But again, Jesus Christ is the key to any transformation that God brings about on this earth. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, God says, All the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is in Jesus Christ. So that means whatever good thing God is bringing about on earth today, He brings it about through Jesus Christ. But in Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, Isaiah is leaving the person of Christ a bit of a mystery in these chapters. Again, he isn't really explaining to us how God is bringing about these transformations, but he is saying that God will bring about these transformations. God will write these stories. And so again, I want my emphasis this morning to match Isaiah's emphasis. So I'm going to focus on the transformations that God is bringing about and not necessarily how he does that through Jesus Christ. But again, if you want to be a part of any of these transformations this morning, then you must put your faith in Jesus Christ to be included in any of these good things that God is working. So let me list four particular transformations that I see in Isaiah 65 and 66, four particular transformations, and we're just going to dive into each one of these briefly so that we can see this amazing story that God is writing in human history. So I'm just going to list out the four transformations, and then again, we'll take them one by one. The first transformation we see is that the old lineage of Abraham is being replaced by an ingathering of all nations. So the old lineage of Abraham, the selection of the Jewish people, is being replaced by an ingathering of all nations. The second transformation that we see is that the old combination of wickedness and self-righteousness among God's people is being replaced by sincere love to God and poverty of spirit. So self-righteousness and wickedness is being replaced by love to God and poverty of spirit. The third transformation we're going to look at is the old falling apart Jerusalem is going to be replaced by a new and imperishable Jerusalem. And then the last transformation I want to look at is that the old fear of judgment, the old fear of God's wrath, is going to be replaced by unending peace. So these are the transformations that Isaiah is showing us in Isaiah chapters 65 and 66. Now we will be jumping around 65 and 66 because Isaiah isn't laying these things out in a particular order. He's giving us metaphors that kind of contain all of these things. So I'm going to be pointing you to different verses as we go through this, but those are the four places that we're going to go as we look at these chapters. So the first transformation we see, the old lineage of Abraham is being replaced by an ingathering of all nations. 
So to begin to see this drama that God is writing, this story that God is writing, we need a little Old Testament history lesson, right? So the Bible teaches that there is one God who created everything and everyone. The Bible further teaches that humanity fell away from this God and that when they did, disaster came upon the world overall. And then the Bible teaches that in order to draw mankind back to himself, in order to repair the brokenness of the whole world, God chose one man. God chose Abraham and decided that the whole world was going to be blessed through Abraham and through his children. That's Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and he says, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is why the Bible focuses so much on Abraham and on his descendants. Not because he was just like a local God, like just the God of Israel and not the God of anywhere else, but because he chose a specific people in order to bring blessing to the whole world. And so when the Bible is writing about the story of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, the Bible is not simply telling us about the Jewish people like, oh, aren't they an interesting people over here? No, the Bible is trying to tell us that through this people, the entire earth is going to be blessed. And that's why they matter, because God has aims for the very end of the earth. And who are the the Jewish people but the children of Abraham? So that's the definition of a Jew, is if you are a child of Abraham. Remember, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac was his only son through lawful marriage. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Esau sold his birthright, and then Jacob gets renamed Israel, and he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So God says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole earth. And then Abraham has this one line that goes to the 12 tribes of Israel, and then we get the whole nation of Israel is the children of Abraham, and God says that I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. Now, Because of all of this, the Jewish people didn't, or at least they they shouldn't have thought of God's commitment to them as some special commitment to them in isolation, like he wasn't going to bless the world. God's commitment to them should not have made them proud, should not have made them arrogant, like, oh, God chose me, but not you. No, God chose them as servants. God chose them as priests to bless the whole earth. And yet we see this not happening. And so, even though this wasn't happening, the Old Testament doesn't really give us a second option, right? It's not like God says, well, Abraham didn't work, so let me find somebody else. No, it seems like the Jewish people are really the only game in town. And so the Jewish people even started to think like, well, God must really need us, you know? Like, if we don't do our job, then God doesn't have a plan B, you know? We have to do the work of God, and God would never abandon us. But Isaiah, here in Isaiah 65, opens the door to some amazing change. Again, change that would not be even thought of in any other part of the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 9, it says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain. Now pause there for just a moment. He says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. Well, this is a very strange promise. Jacob already has lots of children. There's the whole nation of Israel is the offspring of Jacob. And so when Isaiah says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, what he's saying is I will bring forth a new offspring, a different offspring, not this biological offspring, but something new. 
He says, going on in verse 9, my chosen shall possess it, possess my mountains, and my servants shall dwell there. So this new people, not the biological descendants of Abraham, but this new people is going to possess God's place. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, and now again he's speaking to the nation of Israel, you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose that and chose what I did not delight in. And so God's saying, you who rejected me, even though you are descendants of Abraham, even though you are his lineage, I am rejecting you. And then 65 verse 13, God starts to distinguish between the people of Israel and a new people, the servant. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you, Israel, shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you, Israel, shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servant he will call by another name. And so just this startling eruption in the story of God that all this thousands of years of history that God has built up through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and all of these things. Isaiah is now saying that, no, I'm going to have a new servant and you who I was pledged to for so long, I am going to bring to ruin. And so God is doing a new and a different thing. God gets even more pointed in Isaiah 66 verses 3 to 5. It says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Slaughtering an ox was one of the sacrifices that the people were to make. Is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. You see, Isaiah is saying in all these ways that this whole sacrificial system that the Jewish people were using is passing away because the people who were engaging in these sacrifices are themselves corrupt. And so he is going to bring judgment upon them. And then God makes clear toward the end of our passage this morning what his final plan is going to be. And so if you'll turn to Isaiah 66, verses 18 to 21, it says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, who have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord." Just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. 
So do you hear what God is saying here? He is saying that no longer is he bringing his plan for the whole world to fruition through the Jewish people. No, he is bringing his plan to the world to fruition through the people of the whole world, that he is going to call people to himself from every single tribe and nation. And I love this picture of a parade that he paints here of people coming in chariots and litters and mules and dromedaries. It's this motley crew that God is calling together to his holy mountain in Jerusalem saying, now all of you will be able to see my glory. Whereas before it was only Abraham and his children, now it is anyone who I call to myself. And then most shocking of all, again at the very close, he says, some of them I will also take for priests and Levites, says the Lord, that some of these people who are not even Jewish will be able to go into the very nearest presence of God, just as the priests did, and they will be able to know the Lord. Beloved, it is amazing how God would shift these thousands of years of history, the story that he is writing and how he would open up his very presence, how he would open up his very temple to people like you and me who have no connection to Abraham, who have no connection to the Jewish people, but he would welcome us in. Beloved, are you acting As if God's grace is just to be kept for yourself, like he really just chose you in some kind of isolation? Or do you understand, do you believe that what God is doing right now really is to bring his salvation to all nations? Are you engaged in some way with a cause of world missions by praying or by giving or by going? Are you engaged in the work of evangelism as we have nations coming here to Pittsburgh We have even just around this block here, we have people from Russia, we have people from Myanmar, and people from many more nations right around us here. Are we realizing what God is doing, what God wants to do right now? Take his gospel to all nations. Beloved, we desire to see that promise come to fulfillment, and I believe that God is doing that work now, so we should work in confidence and labor in confidence that God is on the move. So this is the first part of the drama that God is writing. From one people descended from Abraham to every tribe and tongue and nation on the face of this earth. The second drama, the second part of the drama that God is writing is the old combination of wickedness and self-righteousness is being replaced by sincere love to God and poverty of spirit. You see, part of the pride in the family heritage that the Jewish people had was a belief that their heritage itself made them better than other people. And yet in Isaiah 65, starting in verse 2, God says, I spread out my hand all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. So he's talking about the Jewish people. I held up my hand to them and they're rebellious a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. So they're doing all of these wicked things, even though God is holding out his hand to them. But then most shocking of all is what it says in verse 5. It says, Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. And so even though these people were so corrupt, they were doing so many wicked things, yet they still thought that they were too holy for these other people to come near them. And so God is angry with them. Isn't it amazing 
the pride that they can have saying that they are too holy for others, even as, even as they are doing all these things that God despised? Beloved, the human heart knows no boundaries to self-righteousness and pride. Indeed, we can see even today, sadly, among many Christians, that sometimes people can get the idea that because I went to church on Sunday, I'm somehow better than other people or more enlightened than other people, right? Just because you moved your location and were in a room for a couple hours and then you were somewhere else, we somehow think that, ah, now I must be better than other people. But God makes clear that no longer is he going to hold out his hand to a people who despise him and who reject him. Look at Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. God shows the dramatic change that he will make. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And where is the place of my rest? So here, questioning the temple where people came into the presence of God. What is the house you would build for me? What is the place for my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God is saying, no long will it matter whether you have Abraham as your father. No longer will it matter whether you can travel to Jerusalem and go to the temple to be in my presence. No, this is the one who I will favor. This is the one who I will draw near to, to the person who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. To the person who doesn't look to his left and to his right and say, ah, don't get so close to me, I'm too holy for you. But instead, the person who recognizes their own sin, their own corruption, their own evil, and is willing to confess it to God and to others. People who say, I am not any better than you. There is nothing special about me. I am just as wicked as the rest of mankind. And yet God has had mercy on me. That is the one who God loves. And so, beloved, why do we hesitate to confess our sins to God or to one another? Why do we try to put on some mask like we are all that, like we know everything and we have it all put together? Beloved, that is not what God loves. God loves he who is humble and contrite in spirit. And then it also says, and who trembles at my word. Beloved, do you inwardly tremble at the word of God, whether that's when you're reading it on your own day after day, whether it's when we're gathered here on Sunday morning as I proclaim it now? Are you trembling at the words that God is speaking, realizing that it truly is God who is doing this? Or are these words just boring to you and uninteresting? Again, if you tremble at God's word and if you confess your sin to God, then he will draw near to you. He will make his presence known to you. And so no longer will there be any place for this outward religion that's just doing a lot of good works, trying to show off to other people. No, now the only true religion is the religion of the heart, the religion of humility and contrition and inward trembling. This is what God delights in now. So that's the second part of the drama that God is writing. The third part of the drama is that the old falling apart Jerusalem is being replaced with a new and imperishable Jerusalem. The old falling apart Jerusalem has been replaced with a new imperishable Jerusalem. 
Again, when we think of this part of the story, it's important for us to remember that for the Jewish people and for God himself, Jerusalem is not just any old city, right? You can't just kind of take out the word Jerusalem and put in Pittsburgh or New York or London or or any other city. Jerusalem is a very special city because Jerusalem is the place of the temple, The temple of God was located right in the middle of Jerusalem and the temple was the only acceptable place, God said, where you can bring offerings to me, the only place in all the earth where you can come into my presence. And therefore, to say that Jerusalem was going to be replaced with a new Jerusalem is not just to say that one city is going to be replaced with another city. It's saying that the place of coming into God's presence, coming to know God and make sacrifices to him, is going to change completely. And Jerusalem had been the place of so much of God's activity. Again, Abraham himself came to Jerusalem before there was any city there at all. And God promised that land to Abraham. And subsequently, after Abraham died, the coming generations build up the the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Indeed, Jerusalem eventually becomes known as the city of David because David expands Jerusalem so much and Solomon builds a beautiful temple there. And so there's this large part of the story where God is working on this city, the city of Jerusalem. But again, as we have seen, God is promising destruction on his people and promising destruction on this city because they have been disobedient. He is writing a new story. He is saying the old story is coming to an end and I am doing something new. And so this is where we come to Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, so many of the lines in that beautiful poem are the fulfillment of so much of Old Testament prophecy and so, so many Old Testament promises about what God will do for his people. But I think even if you don't know all that prophecy, even if you don't know all that background, you can still read those words and just deeply appreciate this place of peace and beauty that God himself is creating. 
Now, there is some debate about whether this new Jerusalem, this new heavens and earth that Isaiah writes of here is something that's happening right now or if it's only talking about the age to come when Jesus Christ himself brings down the city from heaven. Because it is unusual that this still talks about bearing children and people dying in old age. And so it seems like maybe it's something that is happening here. But whatever the case may be, we know that God is doing good things on the earth right now through his church. And we also know that God is going to bring a city down from heaven in the days to come. And so I believe that we can read this now and say that there is a partial fulfillment coming about right now. Indeed, if you look at the course of human history over the last few hundred years and you see the life expectancy of people going up and up, We've had long periods of peace, unlike any periods that have happened before. Maybe this is kind of an initial fulfillment as the kingdom of Jesus Christ spreads around the world. These good things are happening around the world. But of course, as good as the world may get right now, or if things fall apart again, we know that there is an eternal and everlasting city that is coming, that God himself is building with his own hands that will descend from heaven, and we can look forward to that beautiful and perfect city. And so God is saying, this old Jerusalem that again, for many centuries, I worked on, my people worked on. Yes, it was a nice city. It had big walls. It had a beautiful temple. But God says, I'm doing something even better, even greater than Jerusalem at its greatest. So that's the third part of the drama that God is writing. And then finally, the last part that I want us to see here in Isaiah 65 and 66 is that the old fear of judgment will be replaced by unending peace. The old fear of judgment will be replaced by unending peace. Again, I won't repeat the verses that I've already read about the judgment that God is bringing upon his people, but hear these words about the peace that God is bringing. So this is Isaiah 66, starting in verse 12. It says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. And so this amazing promise of peace like a river, of God being like a mother to us, bouncing us upon his knee. Such an amazing promise. Beloved, before Jesus came, there was always this fear in the back of people's minds that God would come in judgment. Because they knew that no matter how many animal sacrifices they offered, that they still committed sins day after day, and they had to make payment day after day, and they did not know when God's judgment would come. But beloved, now in the new covenant, under the blood of Jesus Christ, we have these words in Colossians 1.20. It says, Through Christ, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Beloved, do you know the peace that you can have with God through Jesus Christ? 
Beloved, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you should have no more fear of judgment. You should have no more fear of the wrath of God. Rather, you should know that even now the Lord smiles upon you and the Lord wants to comfort you. Is your peace as deep and wide as a river? Is your peace such that God is like a mother to you who is bouncing you upon his knee? Beloved, if you don't know that peace, then I encourage you to press into Jesus Christ and his work all the more to know the peace that God speaks over your heart. That you don't have to fear the judgment of God anymore. You don't have to fear any evil coming upon you anymore because you know that you are safe in the Father's arms under the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God is writing the story where it goes from threats of judgment because of the evil of his people to promises of everlasting peace because of the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, notice how in all of these stories, God's starting material is nothing. Or in some cases, it's even worse than nothing. It is wickedness and ruin. And yet that that wickedness, that ruin does not scare God away. God does not look at the state of his people Israel. He doesn't look at the state of Jerusalem and say, oh, I can't, I can't do anything with this. These people are too messed up for me. No, this is the starting place of the story that God is writing. He says, out of this people, I am going to create something amazing. Out of this city, I am going to create an even more amazing city. And beloved, that means that wherever you are at this morning, whoever you may be here in this place, however far gone you may think you are, or however far you may feel that you are from the grace of God, know that God is able to keep you, and he is able to win you, and he is able to transform you. All you have to do, beloved, is hope in him. Look to him. All you have to do is believe this story that God is writing through Jesus Christ. It is not a matter of your internal fortitude. It is not a matter of your personal strength. It is a matter of God who is writing the story. And if you trust in this God who is writing the story, then he will take you to this new Jerusalem then he will take you from this wicked person to a person who is humble and contrite in spirit. Then he will take you from a person who is fearful of judgment to a person who knows peace. God can take you there, beloved, because he has the power and because he sent his son to accomplish this very thing. So know that wherever you are this morning, whatever fear is in your heart, you are not too weak for God. You are not too wicked for God. You are not too old for God. You're not too selfish for God. If you will look to him, if you will trust the work of Jesus Christ this morning, then you will see God do amazing things in you. And we will indeed see God do amazing things on our earth today as his gospel goes out to all nations. Oh, beloved, I invite you to pray with me now for the fulfillment of these purposes around the world. Let's begin by just praying for our own hearts and our own town, and then I will lead us in prayers for the world around us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such great promises. We thank you for doing such great works on the earth, Lord. Even though we don't deserve them, even though we could not accomplish them ourselves, you, Lord, have promised to do them by your own might. And so we thank you for these great promises. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the amazing things that you are doing. And I pray that you would fill us with faith 
that we might work toward these great ends that you yourself are accomplishing. Lord, would you fill our hearts with faith even now as we go to you in prayer, laying our needs before you.